Okay, we, we'll get started. Uh, good afternoon, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. Uh, our first back in Ennis. I think the last one was at the, the Merriman Summer School a few years ago. Anyway, I'm your uh, Head School Master, uh, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland uh, magazine, and uh, I assume you're all subscribers. And if you aren't, there's a sample there. Uh, amazing generosity on our part. There's a, a, a back issue there uh, with our compliments. Now, um, this, uh, this uh, head school, of course, has been sponsored by Clare County Libraries, uh, we're, and we're very grateful for their support. Okay, so we're, we, what we want to do here is uh, we're going to look at the, the War of Independence in County Clare, but we're going to look at it in the light of David Fitzpatrick's Politics and Irish Life, 1913 to 1921, Provincial Experience of War and Revolution, uh, which was first published in 1977. Uh, the untimely passing of Professor David Fitzpatrick of Trinity College Dublin earlier this year provides a timely opportunity to reassess his groundbreaking 1977 local study of County Clare, which was to become the template for many similar local studies of the War of Independence. So how does it measure up to the intervening 42 years of scholarship, in particular the release of primary sources such as the Bureau of Military History and the Military Service Pensions Collection? So to discuss this and related matters, we have uh, assembled a, a stellar panel here. Uh, very big, strong local representation from uh, Pauri Ogo Rourke uh, on my right, uh, and Tomás Mockenmara on my left, who need no introduction. And uh, also have on my, on my left here, uh, Eve Morrison, uh, who's now uh, uh, in University of Oxford. Yeah. Uh, Eve, yeah. And uh, on my right, uh, Cecile Gordon, who works on the, uh, the, the uh, military service pensions collection. Now, um, before we start, and I, I, I just go to Porik and, and, and uh, Tomás and this one, uh, in about two minutes, uh, give us a rundown of what happened <laughs> the War of Independence in Clare. In other words, what, what we, what we want, want to try and do is, I want to set up uh, the, the, the state of knowledge up to, to the, say, the 1970s before uh, we talk about David Smith-Patrick. I mean, what was the... First of all, let's, let, one question, for example, strikes me. Are we talking about one geographical area here or are we talking about two? Because I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of East Clare, West Clare. One side plays hurling, the other side plays football and uh, all those sorts of things. Porrick? Well, it's, it's one county, uh, but the problem is that the leadership of the various IRA units in it didn't get on. So you have to break it down. The IRA at the time had to into the West Clare Brigade the Mid Clare Brigade, which took in Ennis up as far as Ennis Diamond, and then the East Clare Brigade. And what I'd say is that the county as a whole was one of the most active during the War of Independence. I think in terms of deaths per uh, head of population, it's the fifth or sixth highest in the uh, country. And in terms of what people knew about it in later years, generally people had known some idea of what happened in their family, but the other way people knew about this was through books. So a lot of us uh, would have known, um, let's say the, the memoirs of IRA veterans were very important establishing the history. So in Cork, that was Tom Barry. In Tipperary, that was in Dambreen. Uh, in Clare, that didn't really happen because Michael Brennan, who's leader of the East Clare Brigade, I think was the first veteran to publish a book, and that didn't happen until 1980. And unlike Cork, Kerry, Dublin, and Limerick, which all had a book brought out about the county, Kerry's fighting story, Cork's fighting story, uh, be a very interesting Cork and, or, sorry, uh, Kerry and Dublin fighting story at six o'clock, but anyway. Um, Clare never had one of those books. You occasionally had IRA leaders who would publish a small article, but they would be on specific incidents. In the west of the county, it would be the Renine ambush. In the east of the county, it would be the Glenwood ambush or the Scarif Martyrs. 
everybody knew about De Valera, and when people outside of Clare thought about the county, they thought about it as the place that elected De Valera in 1917. Local commemorations were very important in terms of keeping memory alive, but the focus, the narrative was on the IRA, the what would have been seen as the heroic role of the IRA fighting against the British forces. Occasionally, civilians killed by the British were also remembered and commemorated. But there was very little awareness of Clare's loyalist population. Uh, the political struggles of the day, stuff about women and labor, the role of the church, all that was largely ignored, and it was a simplified narrative. And I think when Fitzpatrick's book was published, although I'd find fault with it in many areas, one thing I'd say about it is it was the first attempt at a county-wide history of Clare. Um, it also set the template, as you said, that influenced <coughs> others, and it was the first to look at loyalist home rule and others. So, Tomás, I mean, uh, what was the nature of the war here? I mean, did it, did it have as Kilmichael's or whatever, you know, large set-piece engagements, or was it a, a smaller scale uh, type of a struggle? It, it, yeah, it had a number of significant events, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in just one minute, but just to, to follow up what was saying there, because I think it's really important uh, in terms of knowledge, particularly in th leading into the 1970s. The War of Independence was primarily a local experience um, that was contributing to a national struggle. And the knowledge in my experience and in my research was, was primarily based on local tradition, local information, be that family, be that community, be that on the basis of local songs that have been composed to commemorate events or, or, or episodes. So when you lead into 1970s, there isn't really a, a massive literature relating to Clare, as, as Podrick says, but there is a tremendous local knowledge uh, and that is, is rooted in the fact that the, the IRA structurally reflected the geographic and cultural identities of the places. And in a county like Clare that's so contained within this almost like an island setting, um, that further uh, contains that memory. So there would have been an intensity and, and continues to be an intensity of oral tradition in terms of knowledge of that period. Now, the, the key events then will, will reflect that. So when you talk to people in, in, in West Clare or in North Clare or in East Clare, they'll gravitate first to the story that relates to the closest point geographically. Uh, so for people around the areas of Innistymon, Milton Malbay, Lahinch, etc., the Rinian ambush is, is obviously going to be a, a key point. And up until that point, that's September 1920, that's the biggest, uh, from the point of view of the IRA, it's the most successful ambush to that point in the country. So it's, it's quite significant in that, in that context. There, there, it needs to be mentioned that in 1917, County Clare moves to the centre of the national struggle, and that's really important in terms of everything else that happens, because Clare leads a campaign uh, following the election of Eamon de Valera to, uh, uh, to confront British rule, and they do that by marching publicly, which they know is against the law. They realise that the RIC are going to have to move against them, and that uh, results in their imprisonment, uh, after which they go on hunger strike. And that leads to the, the multi-hunger strike of 1917, on which 16 out of 38 Clermen participated, and Tomás Ash died. So that had a real radicalisation of County Clare, and we'll reflect on Fitz, David Fitzpatrick's work, but there's very little reference to that, and in terms of, of the radicalisation effect it had on County Clare, when you move in towards the actual War of Independence, that's a really significant development uh, for, for everything else that occurs afterwards. Chris, just to ask you about De Valera when he, when he stood for uh, in the by-election. Was that just an accident in the sense that that was the next by-election that came up? I mean, if De Valera had stood in a by-election somewhere else, would, would we be having this meeting now, <laughs> you know? Like, when when, when um, Willie Redmond was killed, there was a, a notice in the front of the Clare Champion uh, the following week, uh, and it was significant news because he was, he was a very well-liked mm -hmm. uh, politician in County Clare at the time. 
But at the same uh, front page of the Clare Champion was Stop Press, uh, Stop Press, Sinn Féin Prisoners Released. Now, that's as much information was at the time when the Clare Champion went to press, but amongst those prisoners to be released was one Eamon de Valera. So right. it was coincidental in the context of, of, of de Valera's release, but when that election uh, came up, then uh, he was seen as the, the, the optimal candidate. The people of Clare didn't know him, uh, didn't know anything about him, as we, we've, we've mentioned, couldn't pronounce his name. They did actually select the Clare man first, but sometimes party at the local level and party headquarters don't get on. Well, there was a big <laughs> battle in the, in the, in the election. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is a significant moment in terms of moving Clare to the centre of the, the, the struggle. It's a hugely significant for Eamon de Valera's yeah. career in, in Irish Republican but the, politics. But there was nothing unusual in that. I mean, it, it, most of Sinn Féin's candidates were parachuted in, to use the, the present nominator. Weren't they? Yeah, they had one. They tended not to go for local people. I think they had wanted originally, you see, there have been various selections and factions, and Sinn Fein was actually a party kind of still in formation and in flux at the time. <coughs> they had wanted um, possibly Michael Brennan or Patrick Brennan, who were kind of seen as the military men in the county because they had been interned in the 1916 Rising, even though they had turned out and hadn't fought in it. But basically, there was a suggestion then, well, maybe we'll parachute in Owen McNeill, and that just was not acceptable because he was seen as the man that called off the Rising. But De Valera came in under the title, which I would argue is probably ill-earned, the hero of Boland's Mills. And if you look at the local poems and songs and lecture and literature, it was all about how he got the credit for the, um, uh, the Moore Street Bridge and all the fighting that happened there. And De Valera was very much seen as a hero, and that's why he was, they were happy to accept him. Now, I want, I want to just go on to, to David Fitzpatrick. But just before I do, I, I forgot at the outset to, to explain the, the format of uh, the head school here. Uh, you're, you're at school, guys. You have to sit up straight in your seat. You have to pay attention, uh, uh, such that if you want to make any uh, interventions, comments, questions, uh, we're open to the floor at any stage. So at any stage of the discussion, if you want to make a contribution, just put your hand up, and we have a radio mic here. Uh, Una will be, will be manning the radio mic. And just bear in mind that this is being recorded, so nothing libelous, please. Um, and uh, it, it will later then be... Um, be uh, put up on our website as, as a podcast, so it'll be preserved for eternity. <laughs> right, so just bear that in mind. Now, Eve, I want to just, just, just uh, we'll come back to this discussion in a second. Um, David Fitzpatrick, just tell us a little bit about him, his background, uh, and how he ended up doing a study of this particular county. Okay, I'm very lucky that we had a symposium for him before he died in which he actually at the end of it stood up and talked a lot about why he chose Clare, so I'm, I'm uh, able to answer that question. But first, he, he was, uh, Dave Fitzpatrick was, um, he died several months ago, he was from Melbourne in Australia, um, he was the son of Brian Fitzpatrick, who was basically a left-wing journalist and historian, he was very, very famous uh, in Australia, I've yet to meet an Australian who's at least, or at least an Australian my age, who doesn't immediately know who Brian Fitzpatrick well, he, was. He was a communist, wasn't he? Active communist, you'd say? Uh, he might have been. Actually, I'm not, I don't think anyway, he was. He was civil liberties. He was certainly a socialist. He was in the, the Australian Labour Party for a while, but then he left. And there was, but, but certainly he was very left-wing. And his, both, both his, his children became historians. His, Dave Fitzpatrick's sister is, is Sheila Fitzpatrick, who's a very distinguished uh, historian of the Russian Revolution. You know, so they both, I think, inherited from their father that interest in popular movements. Um, and he did his, his PhD in Cambridge. He did a local study of Clare, which became Politics and Irish Life. Um, and it's, I mean, if you look at it, it's, it's extensively researched. He's also uh, probably unrivaled in his command of, of statistics and, to, you know, and his use of them. I think maybe only Cormac O'Grada 
would, you know, could, could rival him for that, and he continues to use, use that. He, he, but he also was quite unusual at the time in that he did oral history interviews. Now, we can talk about how much he used or didn't use them in a while, but in the context of the early 70s, within uh, academia, that almost never happened. It was, you know, it was very unusual for uh, an academic historian to take uh, oral history seriously at all. And uh, I mean, and I suppose the wider context of both his work and another British historian named Charles Townsend, who also did his PhD in the 70s. I mean, the troubles were going on, but really both of them, I think, were looking a little bit more widely at, at world events. It was, you know, they were looking at you know, and looking at Ireland in the context of national liberation struggles like the Vietnam War, and they were countering historians that people, uh, you know, a guy named Tom Bowden in particular, who nobody knows about because he because he wrote a couple of articles and then uh, sadly died in a in a car accident. But he wrote some some very idealised accounts uh, of of uh, of the Irish Revolution, and so that really that was what they were. You know, it wasn't they weren't really taking on. Republicanism, as such, they were, you know, it was more, it was more the left, you know, and left inter interpretations of of Ireland, um, and so he, and also obviously what he was interested in is looking at the ordinary experience of the revolution and and across the gambit of society, um, and I guess the, when what he was talking about why he picked Clare is he literally he didn't know anything about Ireland. He was like I think his great-grandparents on one side were Irish, right? Uh, his father's, I think his, his father's father was Irish, I think it was. Um, but anyway, so he came over with his wife, might have been his girlfriend then, in the early 70s, and they literally just drove around Ireland and went from place to place and just got a feel of it to try and decide what he was gonna do. And so his first interest apparently was Kerry but he couldn't understand the accents. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and, so he was, and so he was literally driving up the coast and he got to Clare and he just said he really liked Clare, he could understand what people were saying, was, you know, and that between the two, and he, so he knew. So it wasn't like he had a personal connection the way that, that you know, Porig or Tomas would have, but, you know, so it was just literally as, as almost as random as that. Um, and so, you know, I guess it goes without saying, he, he, he had, like when his book came out, it, it just had an, an enormous impact, certainly on history. Yeah, will I leave it there? Yeah, leave it yeah, there for okay. a minute. We'll come back to some of this in a minute. Yeah. Um, I, I, wanna, I tell you one thing that strikes me about it is, is there a certain edible kickback against the, the, the sort of politics of, of the father and the, 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 the David and his sister, you know, who well, so are quite conservative this, in, in their, yeah. uh, their politics? But anyway, Cecile. I want to go on to you because in the course of this discussion, we're going to hear a lot about uh, the Bureau of Military History and in particular uh, the, the Military Service Pensions Collection, which, of course, David didn't have access to, not the, the, the whole body of it. Could you just explain to us what those are very briefly? Right. So the Bureau of Military History is now in the name of a collection held by the military archives. Um, but back then, it was the name of a, a state-led um, project that was set up by the Department uh, uh, the Minister for Defence, Oscar Trainer in January 47. And the aim of the Bureau, the, the ultimate aim, was to create an authoritative narrative um, of the, the Irish Revolution. Um, and for that, the Bureau was set up to give individuals um, who played an active part in, um, in the events which brought about Irish independence a chance to record their own experience through oral history. 
And over 10 years, uh, until 57, uh, you would have investigating officers traveling around Ireland. Uh, they would have been trained in, in interview skills, and they would, be, they would have a code of obstruction. They would have also a chronology of events. Uh, and they would uh, travel around country and get uh, what we call now witness, witness statements. Uh, so the, the course of 10 years, they got um, 1,773 witness statements, some photographs, some press cuttings, some contemporary documents, uh, and uh, very importantly as well, a voice recording. Um, so it is a very important collection in the military archives, and obviously the treatment of and the way they were released and how long it took and you know, issues of, of other files like the ELS files not being processed, being left like that, and also the top sheet and the notes of the investigating officers were a bone of contention when it was released, so we can talk about that later. The military service... Just, yeah. just quickly, quickly on, on the bureau, yeah. though. But you're, you're essentially talking about what, memoirs. Yeah, so oral the point history. Is they're they're as reliable interviewed. or unreliable as the person who wrote them. Yeah, I the said the, so the, the interviewing officers were well trained in recognizing, you know, um, things like self-glorification or embellishment. And they would take notes, you know, uh, uh, this is the top sheet of what we're talking about. There are notes saying, you know, that lady just could not remember anything or, you know, mm. chronologically speaking, they, they couldn't make sense of it. So I'd say they would, they would assist with their chronology of events, but mm. then again... You know, it is subjective. It is, at the same time, there's a level of immediacy when you read them that is, is unlike anything else. Um, so they're a very good source, and, you know, they're very usable now because of the fact they've been OCR'd, and you can search within the text. So that, that made them, in my mind, for people to search names, locations, everything like that. And from that moment on, they were a proper source to use with caution, like any other sources, uh, but very rich in, in details and humanity as well. Um, the, the military service pension, that's a, that's a different animal different altogether. Animals, a yes. different beast altogether. Um, the MSPC, I'm not going to say military service pension collection every time, so uh, MSPC, the main differences are MSPC is an organic collection. It wasn't manufactured for history writing. Uh, it, you know, those records were once working records, and they, they were created naturally through the process of the verification of pensions but applications. Just to say, just to say, they were generated in relation to the state handing out money, right? Absolutely. Now, now that is crucial, right? Because that means that, you know, whatever is in them uh, has to accord to a certain definite standards Correct. of evidence so and so on. They were created from 1923 onwards to recognize the sacrifice of people who went through these events and who could prove that they were in active service during these events. Um, so... But, I mean, you, but that would mean that the person would have to actually outline what they did, who no, shot not who. Not only that, the, it was verified by contemporaries. You could have, you, you, you would need reference letters. Uh, the events would have to be corroborated by commanding officers, which would be hard knowing that many of them had passed as well. Um, you know, everything would have to be recorded by civil servants, medical boards, the army itself, Garda Shokana in, the, uh, in, the, in respect of the dependents. Um, so, and the... the the massive difference is that those files stay open for the length of the, the, the life of the person, which gives you a massive window from the 20s down to whenever they die, which is amazing. So not only you would have the military aspects of what they're telling, you know, the verification officers uh, and the board and the referee about what they've done, but you would have correspondence down to the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, down to the, the, the 2000s. Um, 
We have around, again, estimation, but we're, we're, we're getting there 275,000 files. Um, representing 85,000 people. So, so we're well over a quarter of a million. And so when we started the job in 2008, we were put in front of this beast and we were all went crazy <laughs> because um, Bertie Ahern announced in 2006 that, oh, we should you know, release them in, 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 into the public domain for research. And at that stage, uh, they, they, had, they, knew, they knew of only 17,000 files. But when we arrived, we were recruited in 2007, 2008, economic crash, and then we discovered it's not 17,000 files, it's a quarter of a million. Wow. Um, so, so your job is secure for a few years yet, then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we've, so I, we, I started at the very start in 2008, uh, so it's 11 years of, of my, you know, professional life, basically, so you get very close to that. But you're talking here about, about this, is, this is a hard source, like, compared to the, the Divinity Service Pension. What do you mean by that is, it's, this is objective stuff, insofar as... I, 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 it's difficult to say objective, and you say, obviously, people are competing for money, so, you know, some people are bound to lie, or, you know, and actually, after 11 years with the fire, there is very... There's I can know only on a handful of cases that people really try to to fraud for getting medals or something like that, and it's very they have to jump through so many hoops. They have their events and whatever their evidence they have could to be corroborated so much, uh, and it, it was seen as a callous machine as well um, that we don't really see evidence of lies or because they get found out because. The people who are verifying as well are people like high-ranking officers like Seamus Robinson, John McCoy, who knew exactly the people, they knew the organizational structure of the organization, and you know it would be difficult to stay with the same lies through all these hoops and not get found out. Tommy, uh, if I could just come in here yeah. on the Bureau of I did my um, PhD on the, on the Bureau of Military History, and um, w one of the things when I looked at the actual administrative record of the Bureau was basically the main control they used were the military service pension collections. They had full access to them. They drew their, their uh, they picked their interviewees from the nominal roles. They, they drew up lists so of what, questions. What the nominal roles, just explain what that is. Okay, the nominal roles are the lists of, of memberships of all the IRA companies and the structure of the IRA that were drawn up in the 30s by the military service pensions because they basically, they had an army, but it's, you know, they, with, without any sources for who was so, in them. So you're saying the, 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 the Bureau uh, project is, is being informed by the other, by the, it's, the service. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, so they're, they're speaking to each other, if you like. No, no, no. well, it, and so, so they, they looked through the brigade activity okay. records, they drew up loads of ambushes. They could, the Bureau of Military History could not have ever happened okay. without the military service pensions. They also were given full access to uh, people's individual uh, pension files and applications and things. So really, the Bureau was the first use of the military service pensions as a source now, for history. I was going to say in relation to how this goes, to, where it relates to Claire, but if you want to go, sorry. No, I just wanted to come in. The point is that we're jumping ahead a bit because we're talking about stuff that David Fitzpatrick didn't have access to, right? Mm -hmm. So what I want to go back is, how did he make up for the fact that he didn't have, you know, I know he, he had access to some of it, and we'll come back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. So how did Davis Fitzpatrick uh, engage in the task? 
without having access to the stuff we have access to now. Okay, well, um, he went and he interviewed uh, a lot of people locally, and again, Tomás is going to talk about that later, I think, but he also looked at, obviously, what was available in the newspapers, what was available from local archives, like here in, in Ennis, in the National Archive, and so on. Um, the thing is, though, he presents a huge amount of statistics, I mean, and everyone copies this model, and in some ways, if you want statistics of the War of Independence, it's very good. If we take, for example, the case of the Royal Irish Constabulary in Clare, I mean, Fitzpatrick will give you statistics relating to their working conditions, how many of them were posted in County Clare, where every single barracks was, um, what their rate of crime prevention was, and so on. The problem with this is it doesn't actually tell you what was actually happening at ground level. And one of the things I find is he devotes a whole chapter to the Royal Irish Constabulary in Clare, including Black and Tans, and there's no real, to me, statistics don't tell the human story behind that. For example, one of the major events in County Clare is the Renine Ambush. And if I was giving a statistic for the Renine Ambush, I would say that six members of the British forces were killed, and after that, you had reprisals by the British forces, which were carried out in four different towns, La Hinch, Discanner, Newtown Malbay, and Ennistymon. At least 70 houses were destroyed, according to police records. Now, you imagine the police come and burn your house tonight. Would you go and report it to them tomorrow? Probably not. So there's probably many more than 70 burnt. Five civilians killed, including a 15-year-old boy, PJ Lenan, and a 12-year-old girl, Nora Fox. And the RIC actually attempted to cover this up. They said, we didn't burn these places. It was a mysterious anti-Sinn Féin gang who came into town with lots of petrol and grenades and just blew everything up. And you will not find that detail in Fitzpatrick's book because it's not that it's lost in the statistics. It's just not there. He's too busy looking at their social status and stuff. There's other examples like the Castle Connell shooting, which happens just over the border in County Limerick. And again, he gives statistics. Two Clare policemen were shot dead in a pub by the Clare Auxiliaries, and that's his sentence. What actually happened there was a group of black and tans were off duty, were drinking in the pub. They were wearing civilian clothes. A group of auxiliaries arrived into town wearing civilian clothes. These British forces saw each other in civilian uh, clothes with guns and basically said, look, it's the IRA, mate, and started shooting each other up. And it was a friendly, what we would call today a friendly flyer, blue on blue incident. But Fitzpatrick just describes that as two Clare policemen were shot dead by, by other policemen. What he doesn't mention is that a civilian, Dermot O'Donovan, who owned the pub hotel they were drinking in, was then taken out and shot dead in cold blood to get revenge for something the British forces had done to themselves. And this was raised in the House of Commons because Lord Palmer, um, he was a lord at the time, his brother was on holidays staying in that hotel. Not only did he witness the incident, but he picked up a dum-dum bullet, which was an illegal type of ammunition at the time the British were always giving out that the IRA used. And he gave this to his brother, who presented it in the House of Lords. And that caused a national scandal. And that's not mentioned, or it's mentioned in one sentence in the book, which doesn't give that detail. And another thing, for example, the Killaloo Bridge murders, the Scarif Martyrs, where you have one civilian, three IRA, who are tortured and killed on the bridge at Killaloo. And this causes national attention because the commander of the auxiliaries, the force that does it, resigns in protest. And again, Fitzpatrick is so busy with statistics on the RIC, he doesn't go into these killings. And I feel they're far more important than knowing how many RIC men were in the county and what their social status was. Tomás, can yeah, I, yeah, yeah, you can come in that? Come in there. Well, particularly in the last point is, is really important. I'm just finishing off a book on the Scarif Martyrs, and uh, it, it's, it's a hugely significant event in, in, in County Clare, uh, particularly in East Clare. Um, and the impact it has on the people of the area, 
the Republican movement generally is is hugely significant, and you know it is one of the unfortunate things about Fitzpatrick's book is there is no mention whatsoever of it. In actual fact, there's a reference to the wonderful change for the better that the uh, County Inspector of the RIC noted upon the arrival of the auxiliaries into Killaloo, but it doesn't follow on to, sh to talk about what they were directly involved in a couple of weeks later. So that's hugely significant, and for me, you know, I, I, I agree definitely that, that an, an overly statistical approach can't get to the heart of it, and, and my approach to history has always been how can you represent the experience of the time as forcefully as, as possible. Um, the statistical approach that Fitzpatrick used and the, the compilation of such a wide range of sources was, was unprecedented in terms of a county study at the time, so that was massively important. I think the, the, the issue of its ability to convey the mentality of the, well, the conflict it, is, it, is another question it's entirely. Funny, funny you should mention that, because one, one of the, the positives of the, the book, normally, people say is that, that uh, David Fitzpatrick did manage to convey the, the mentality and the psychology of, of the society. You, you'd question that? I would question that, yeah. And it, it is around the commentary on the book, I suppose, is more of an issue about what the book does or doesn't do itself. Mm. Um, but, but the commentary is usually reinforced with this notion that um, because of his research in the 1970s, he was able to engage with people, uh, engage with the county, and be able then to convey from that research a, 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 a sense of the mentality and a social history of the place. But do you want to go somewhere? No, there's some, some of the audience, want, and they want to get in quick, because if you don't get in quick, you'll never get a chance to get in here. Uh, we'll take the question here, so yes. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, maybe I've been reading all the wrong books for the past uh, 25 years, but it seems to me that the uh, War of Independence in Ireland was a guerrilla war. And you're sitting here talking about statistics that were put together in the 30s, and I just don't understand, you know, you know, you can sit here and talk about statistics for the rest of the afternoon, but the bottom line was, is, was it not a guerrilla war? Hello? Yeah. Anybody alive up there? One, which might, of course it was a guerrilla war. Right. We're trying to so if it was a guerrilla war, you're not going to have the kind of statistics after 1921 or 22 when the treaty was signed that you would have with ordinary wars, say the British no. with troops and, and, and set peace well, fights. No, I, I mean, if, if you listen to what Cecile was saying, the point is about the, the, the uh, military service pensions collection which was, and that was, so, was so being compiled immediately if, if after. I could give the point is that, that the, the person getting the pension, that's money from the state, had to prove that they, that they did this ambush or that ambush, you know, X, Y, Z, everything had to be verified, verified by the commanding officer. So the point I'm making is that the, 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 a record was produced after the guerrilla war. This must have been the start of the HSE, right? We, uh, have I, to, we, well, we have to keep everything in if, order. If I could give an example, so what Cecile and Tommy were talking about there is that, you know, that these were actually sitting down with the people who had fought that guerrilla war. And in one case in the Bureau, you took their account of what happened, and that was unchecked. You just got to say, I fought in this battle, I was shot by an auxiliary or a black and tan or whatever, and that was accepted, nobody questioned it. But then the pensions came along, and you couldn't say you were there unless, unless you were there. It. Do you know what I mean? And so it's very solid, it's very solid information. One thing that's very important is that um, you will sometimes get in those collections, because they were locked up and only released in 2003, you will get people talking about events that they did not discuss even with their families. I'll give you an example of this. Um, Seamus Hennessy was one of the leaders of the 4th Battalion Mid Clare Brigade leading that guerrilla war, and I'm not going to use any statistics here. He talked to his family about his experiences. He was a founding member of Fianna Fáil. He was very proud of what he did in the War of Independence, and rightly so. 
But when he talked to Ernie O'Malley, who was one of the people who independently collected interviews and stuff, he didn't mention that he had been involved in the execution of a British soldier, Private George Duff Chalmers. The only place that was mentioned, and I believe the Hennessy family didn't even know about this, was in the pension statement that was locked away for years. And when I got that information, I went out and pieced it together, and this brings us right back to the heart of the guerrilla war. The information I could get from that and from other oral history, which we've been talking about as well, led me out to the bog where that soldier was buried. I wrote an article on it for History Ireland magazine, and 97 years after that soldier had been executed and buried, his remains were actually dug up and given a, a military funeral by the British. So these documents are incredibly important. Even if all the survivors of the War of Independence are dead now, these documents, these pension things, are their testimony of that guerrilla war, and that's why it's important. Eve, you want to... Oh, no, I just want to okay. say, just, just, just uh, to, be, to be clear, people had already applied for, for military service pensions and were given them or not when they, when they um, made their, their Bureau of Military History statement. And the biggest problem they had getting people to give a statement or not was actually not the Civil War, which everybody thought. It was actually the, the, the outcome of their application for a pension. And the thing is, is that they, and every, the Bureau is well aware of what they had said in their pension statements and things. So you have to be careful. It's, the, the, different, the big difference is, is that when, when they looked at all the, the military service pensions, things, they say, look, we just, we don't have a linked up narrative of these people's service. If, you know, people are, are, were being questioned very uh, specifically around um, their, their service at particular points in time where they could get money for it and, they, and not everything came up. So what they, 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 they decided to use the Bureau was to go out and get people to tell their whole story, whether it was directly relevant to whether they were in the IRA in, in July 1921 or not. So I don't think it's really, you know, it's not that one is, is, is more, um, how would you say it? It's not that one is necessarily more accurate than the other, mm -hmm. they're different. Mm -hmm. And they're very intimately connected. And the thing is, you can't really use the Bureau of Military History Statements properly until now that all the, the sources that they use as their control, which is the military service pensions, yeah. have been released. There's, there are a few differences that make it really, uh, that makes the, uh, the MSPC stand out a little more, is that while the Bureau of Military History, the witness statements, originally, they, 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 they were not supposed to go into the Civil War territory. They were supposed to stop at the truce. Mm. Some, um, some statements do go there, but it's mm. really not um, uh, the majority. Uh, the Military Service Pensions Collection covers until the end of the Civil War. It covers so many more women that we had no idea about. Uh, it covers the dead. The dead have a voice because the dependents can apply in respect of their deceased relatives. Otherwise, we wouldn't know their name because they're gone. They can't apply for their service pension. Mm -hmm. um, there's plenty of things like that, that that make it completely unique. And sorry about the statistics, but these are all uh, information that we never had before. We've, ne we've had never had like 2,000 pages dedicated to County Clare in just the nominal roles. We never had the figures in the nominal roles. What's very important is the two sets of figures. You have the figures for the war independence, but you have the figure for the civil war as well. You have the strength of each brigade, of each battalion, of each company, which is amazing in a way. Then again, their figures have to take, you know, you have to be cautious with that. Yeah. Liam, yeah. Um, in relation to the Bureau of Military History statements and the pensions, they're two totally different animals. Yeah. Now, far too much, the big book done in Cork used the pensions as a source 
they are not as a reference, but not a source. The um, military, as I said, military witness statements, if you cross-reference them, you'll get the truth. Uh, an example of the pensions would be in Limerick. The a question asked in the doll in the 1950s as to what pensions were being paid in the county. The two highest men, one of them joined the IRA in 1917. At the time of the truce, he was a, 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 a battalion adjutant. The second man, fair enough, had been in the volunteers since 1914, uh, but at the time of the truce, he was in jail. A man who was a brigadier over a mid-Limic flying column and the mid-Limic brigade. He had a lower pension than the two boys, even though he was an officer in the volunteers from 1914. Surprise, surprise, the two boys were Fianna Fáil TDs. Now, the one thing about the pensions is, and one thing that's missed in it, a man's pension was determined to a large, to a large extent by the number of people under him. What did that encourage? Like I see uh, for the Balneity Company in, in, in Limerick that uh, Patrick Enright is listed as a member. Who is Patrick Enright? He's the brother to the RIC men killed at Naklong. He was no more in the IRA than I was. Hmm. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Liam. I, I, I want to just move on here, guys, because one of the innovative features of uh, uh, Dave Fitzpatrick's work is his use of uh, oral history. Tomás, this is your, your uh, uh, area. Um, how new was that at that time? And, well, and, 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 and how, many, how many people did he interview, do you know? Uh, well, there's 38 people listed. Um, so not 38 people listed right. as, uh, as have given, uh, offered spoken recollections as, as, as David Fitzpatrick describes them. Now, your first question, it's very innovative to, to even employ oral history or memory at that time, particularly within academic history. Now, for, for local people compiling local histories, it was the primary uh, pathway toward, towards memory, and local people understand that, understood that all the time. Uh, but in academic history, it was novel. Uh, now, he, 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 he says he spoke to 38 people. Um, That's a small enough sample, though, isn't it? Or is it? It's not small for that time. Um, but, mm. but the difficulty is, and I was making that point earlier, and it actually kind of speaks to what we've just been talking about in terms of how, how do you convey a sense of experience. And we've talked a lot about the sources that are available to, uh, to us in terms of official sources. There's a limitation. There's, there's a, a necessary limitation to the knowledge that they can give. Firstly, because they're, they're focused on... Uh, IRA members, and s some IRA members, not all, come in a minor omitted to a large degree. Um, but then the War of Independence happened in local areas all across County Clare, and the impact was felt all across those local areas. So, so the much, just to clarify, the, the, but the 38 people he interviewed would have been people who were actively involved in the, in the, the struggle. Some were actively involved, some were connected. Uh, to, but they're eyewitness eyewitness people. They, they absolutely are. And again, that is so, one of the key praise um, or reasons for, for, for the praise that is given to the book. The question I have is, I don't see any real evidence of their use in the book. Um, okay. And we'll discuss why that's the case. But, you know, he, he revealed himself at one point that he was usually defeated by the clear accent and made very sparing use of the material. So for me, you know, now there's a number of, of, of discussions around that. I mean, there, there must have been somebody around Trinity that understood the clear accent at that time. But my point is this. <laughs> what, what's really important is that that's one of the key pillars uh, of praise for the book that it tapped into the mentality. Are, are just the, just uh, let me finish this yeah, point sorry, because sorry. what's really critical there is if we're trying to reflect 
uh, what happened and what that experience was like, then people who, who experienced it are the best to be able to narrate that. But the opportunity was there. I'm sure he took it to speak to people, but it's not reflected in the book. And therefore, it shouldn't be one of the key reasons why the book is seen as such an important contribution. Okay. Because those voices are not really in there. Are there, are there transcripts of the interviews he conducted? Well, I corresponded uh, with, with Dave Fitzpatrick over my PhD, and for people who don't know, my, my PhD and my work has been on compiling oral history and oral tradition on this period in County Clare over nearly 20 years at this stage. And uh, unfortunately, they weren't uh, playable, I, I believe, certainly in terms of the correspondence that I got. Um, so there's no evidence of the transcripts uh, in terms of, of well, certainly I, I, from what I've seen. And, and I know Eve has a, a contact I think of Louis, you know, Louis Mayer, you know, a verbal agreement isn't what the paper is written on. Uh, I mean, if, if the stuff is, if, if there aren't transcripts, then there's a problem there in terms well, look, of... Before Eve comes in, because I know Eve has, has, has a, a direct, uh, you know, spoke with David about this. Um, but what's really important in the broader sense of discussing the War of Independence and how we, we capture it is the, the value that is in the, the local knowledge, information and stories because it has that capacity to widen out our knowledge beyond direct participants or beyond some direct participants, which is what the brilliant MSP and, and Bureau of Military History sources give us. But there is a limitation, a narrowing of that story, whereas the local oral tradition has that ability to broaden it out. We talk about coming among, we talk about the IRA, membership. There was a whole ream of people that were directly involved that weren't uh, members, and there's a whole ream of people outside that that weren't involved at all, but they also experienced it. Mm. So that's where the opportunity lies within memory to capture and convey that experience, and I don't think that's done in the book. Now, what do you mean by that, Tomás? I'm trying to just... Um I, I haven't quite grasped your point here. You're saying then that he, he, he conducted the interviews but you're saying it's not reflected in the book, like, so what do you mean by that? Use them. I mean, he didn't seem to use them. I mean, okay. it, so part of it might be methodology in terms of, you know, the direct quotation of a source and the reference right. to that. Um, there's, there are some areas where he seems to imply that he spoke to Joe Bloggs, and this is mm -hmm. the, the, the finding I make on this particular point. So methodologically, there's no clear um, evidence of how they were used, but we have his own admission that he made very sparing use of the interviews uh, because of the issues around the accent. So again, if we're to look at well, the... Can I, is there, was he right not to be cautious, though? I mean, the, the, the whole issue of oral history has created all sorts of controversies in other areas, right? Because, uh, and we're talking here about a uh, testament of people like 50 years later, 50, 60 years later after the events as well. That's absolutely fine if you take that approach. But the point is the book stands, one of the key pillars this book is seen to be, and he says it himself, he's the last to be privileged with the opportunity of speaking to onlookers and bystanders and participants. Mm -hmm. That's one of the key reasons that this book 40 years later is seen as the key you know, regional study. But we look through it, the evidence is not there that one of the key pillars was ever used. So th that's a really critical point in terms of assessment. Yeah. Okay, well, no, it's just, uh, uh, David, I don't think I said it before, David was my supervisor uh, for, for my PhD, and I, I had several conver conversations with him uh, about his interviews, and I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, <laughs> let me listen to them, <laughs> or at least tell me about them, or, or and then in later stages to actually put them in an archive. Now, I know he says that, that it, was the, that it was the accents that put him off. Now, and that might have made it more difficult, I think, to make the transcripts, but that's not what he told me was the reason why he, he didn't use them. Um, for a start, uh, he, he said he, that, that he only had, all of, almost all of his interviewees were, were either IRA men or nationalists of some sort, and so he thought, he thought it, would, it would give a, a, a too much bias towards that particular narrative of 
the War of Independence, and he was trying to do a much broader study that had home rulers, loyalists, all sorts of, and so, and he didn't, so he didn't have a balance. Um, the other thing he said was, though, you have to remember, <laughs> David was quite a difficult person, right? And he wasn't somebody, and, and he, and, um, you know, and he, he could be, and so he, he wasn't very, you know, he could be very nice sometimes, and he got, he got nicer as, in his, his final years, um, but he, he wouldn't be the best at relationship people. And what he told me about the interviews, he was having, he had a hard time getting the information sometimes that he wanted, and when he began to, I was asking him about what this was, and so he had this plan that he was going to use his statistics about the size of people's farms, and compare them with the size of their farms after the, rev, you know, after the revolutionary period. So what he was basically doing was going around and asking people the size of their farms, right? And I started, and, 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 and he said, it's, and they would never tell me, you know? And so surprise, just, surprise. Yeah, no, see, the thing is, so he wasn't, you have to remember, he wasn't Irish, right? And so he wouldn't have known that he was also very young, you know, and it's the sort of thing, like, I don't know, I've lived in Ireland for 33 years or something, but I'm American, and I remember asking somebody what the size of their farm was only once, you know? But it's the sort of thing so that he really didn't see, I, I, I think, and he said, what he said was, is that people were obsessed with how corrupt military service pensions were, and that's all they wanted to talk about, and he said to me, and he said, now after reading your PhD, I realize I just should have let them talk which was about the nicest thing that he said to me uh, during the whole PhD. But what he was saying is he should have just let them say what they wanted to say. Uh, thanks. Yeah, Eve, you've actually covered some of the questions I had, but I wanted to ask a little bit more about the methodology of his interviews. Like, did he go out with a tape recorder and do the recordings still exist? Or how did he go about making connections within the communities to get his informants? And Well, see, there was lots of people alive. I don't think it was that difficult to find people then. I mean, I don't, and, and, it, and, so, but, and so, but it's always kind of random, you know, where, whereas you go out and you'd, you'd make connections with people and somebody would give you the name of somebody else. I think that's, and there are recordings uh, I have no inf I was hoping to give some information about what's going to happen to them. Uh, I don't have any at this stage. Uh, I'm, I'm still, I've said over and over again that I think that they should put, be put into an archive. Uh, we have plenty of people around. The they do exist. exist. Yeah. yeah, no, they do exist. Uh, I don't think they've been fully transcribed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is, take this question because you're, you, he who has the mic is king here. Uh, thanks. <laughs> we'll be over to you next. Right? Um, I'm just kind of of the opinion there's far too much focus on the uh, military aspects of the Irish yes. Revolution, mm. um, not enough on popular mobilisation. Yeah, I'm um, including like purely around separatist demands. Yeah, like say the anti-conscription protests, or like say people coming out um, when the Scarif martyrs were brought from Scarif to Killaloo and you know praying along the roadside, um, which is, to my mind, an important part of participation in the, in the um, revolutionary struggle. But also, um, in terms of popular mobilization, not enough focus on labor and not enough focus on agrarian protests. So I wanted to ask if, the pan, if members of the panel could speak to uh, agrarian protests in Clare in 1920 and 23. Okay. Uh, can I just develop this point, and I'll, I'll be back to you straight away, because I, I, it, it, you anticipated my next question here, which is those other areas that uh, David Fitzpatrick filled in. You know, like in other words, he, he looked at the Irish Parliamentary Party element, he looked at, you know, he looked at the whole society. 
Um, how did he, how did he achieve that? Well, to, uh, talk, to talk to some of the other areas, one thing on the, the agrarian, there was actually quite a strong movement in 1918 and, and onwards for the reform of land, that you had loyalists in Clare who had ranches of up to, I'm thinking of the Kilmore estate, three and a half thousand acres. And you had local people whose families had been driven off those during the famine so rich people could go hunting or, or graze cattle. And in 1918, there was a movement led by the IRA and by the people together where they would go to these estates, they would drive off the cattle with horns on, or with the, uh, a sign tied to the cattle's horns saying, the road for the bullock, the land for the people. And the IRA were involved in that up to their necks. For example, the first member of the East Clare Brigade killed in the War of Independence, the first person to die from political violence in Clare in the War of Independence, is a guy called John Ryan, who was killed at Blackwater in Dura. He was an IRA volunteer. He was with a number of people who had been on hunger strike with Thomas Ashe. So these were the leading guys in the IRA. They went down, they confronted the RIC at one of these cattle drives, and he was shot dead. And that was actually one of the reasons why it hasn't been covered up until now, I did a little booklet on it, but um, was because there was a deliberate attempt by some of the veterans who were embarrassed later to talk about it. For example, um, Michael Brennan mentions the court case of those men when he was sat down and a typist went in front of him for the Bureau of Military History. And he talks about, um, you know, oh, we did an anti-war protest and lots of guys were locked up in the court and we managed to free them what they were involved in was actually land driving. But this guy was a former head of the Irish Army. So in the 1950s, he didn't want to admit that what he'd been involved in was socialist at best or communist at worst. And actually, head office um, of the Sinn Féin, people like Arthur Griffith, were very conservative, wanted this clamped down on. Uh, like De Valera was making speeches at the time saying we need to redistribute the land to the people, really left-wing stuff. But later it became an embarrassment. And when the first IRA volunteer gets killed in Clare, it's basically driving cattle and not attacking a British barracks. So sometimes they clamped down on this. They made a, a decision to cover it up. Um, this gentleman here, get in quick when you have the chance. Thanks very much. Can you hear me? Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, just, I, th I thought the War of Independence started in 1919, Parik, not 1918, and that, that cattle drive in Newmarket was in February 1918. But apart from that, there's a wonderful line, or a, a paragraph in, in Fitzpatrick, and I think we should go back to Fitzpatrick. We're here to reassess the value of his work. I think it's wonderful work, and I'll just give you an instance of the type of language he uses, which conveys an, an immense amount of information. He said, cattle driving was joined by arms raiding, house and church burning, and arms attacks on Protestant parties. It is difficult to disentangle the economic, political, and military straits in this campaign of violence. For the same assailant was often volunteer, Sinn Féin, and uneconomic holder, our landless younger son. I think that sums it up. Thank I think you. Too, does, does it sum it up, uh, Tomas, well, right? Joe, I have to, to first point, I mean, the War of Independence can be seen to technically start in, in 1919, but we know that any revolutionary period doesn't start on the date it is officially given. It has to come from something. So the cattle drives in 1918 are, are absolutely critical for radicalisation because the police are being challenged. You have a, 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 a drive out in, in East Clare where police are knocked down, their carbines are taken from them. That's a very public image. And for many people, when they see, while it's an agricultural activity or a, a cattle drive primarily, they see British rule being challenged. They see the police being challenged. So that is hugely critical to what happens in 1919. Equally see in 1917, 
when it's a different campaign where the, 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 the Republican movement in Clare are challenging the police, the reason they're doing that explicitly is to show the public that this most visible element of British rule in Ireland, the RIC, can be challenged. So the, what happens prior to 1916 is really critical. And I actually would suggest to go back further. The Badaik evictions of 1887 is not mentioned in the book. It's absolutely critical to the formation of a militant consciousness in East Clare. Um, 1881, five, six years before that, John Maloney is killed in, in a dispute connected to the same issue. His nephew becomes one of the leading IRA figures in East Clare subsequent to that, and he directly connected it back to what he knew about his family tradition. So we can't disconnect what happens previously and what those grievances are. And those grievances, Joe, are, are, are simplified for people when they're looking on and saying, that's British rule. We can look now and pick it apart and say one is economic, the other is political, the other is agrarian. But for when people are looking on, they look at one discernible, obvious issue, and that for them was British rule. Yeah, just no, use the mic. Just yeah, you, can, yeah, you can come back in, but use the mic. So no, no, just just use the mic, not, so we can hear you. Just one point there on that. I think it's quite also relevant. In 1921, Clare County Council, dominated by by Sinn Féin, totally dominated by Sinn Féin, appointed O'Callaghan Westrop to the County Board of Agriculture and took out a few useless or lazy Sinn Féiners, including the bishop. That is in David Fitzpatrick. That's also true, and I think. That's another factor. He is the son of the evictor of 1887, the Bodaic evictions. And so bear that in mind. Well, what does uh, that you know, do with what I said? Beg your pardon? What has that to do with what I said? Well, it George O'Callaghan Westrop was a very different individual to his father. We know he was the person who came out publicly and praised. He, he, he was a unionist. unionist who came out and publicly yeah. praised Sinn Féin. O'Callaghan Westrop was a unionist. He came out and publicly praised Sinn Féin, did he yes, not? He did. Yes, he yes, did. He, did. he, he was convinced by Devon Sorry, okay. Listen, so one's been, one thing that's been just touched on there is the whole issue of uh, you know, sectarianism, because obviously this is something that's uh, come up, uh, St. Peter Hart's work uh, in County Cork, right? So, Parik, what's the situation uh, in Clare on that, that particular um, topic? In, in Clare, um, Clare had the smallest, I think, Protestant population of any county in Ireland at the time, at about 2% Protestant. Um, it also generally to a man and a woman, they were largely pro-British. Now, there were Republican Protestants in Clare, like the Blackwell family in Ennistymon, who for Republican pedigree, believe it or not, going right back to the storming of the Bastille. One of them was there in France at the time. Um, but mostly, unlike, let's say, Dublin, where there was a large working-class Protestant and often loyalist community, in Clare, most Protestants tended to be in a very moneyed position, and a lot of them would actually have been owning very large estates. One thing Fitzpatrick discusses in the book is the burning of, of churches. Um, he claims there's three burned in Clare during the War of Independence. I would say there's only two. One of those was in Clare Castle. Now, Clare Castle was a stronghold of the ancient order of Hibernians, who were basically green orange men, sectarian bigots, linked to the Irish Parliamentary Party. And it's interesting that a local Sinn Féin councillor condemns the attack. Another one is O'Brien's Bridge, um, where it's the RIC note, and Fitzpatrick mentions this in his book, that the local IRA volunteers <coughs> are amongst the people who arrive to quench the fire in the church. Um, one thing that isn't mentioned in the book is that um, you do have sectarianism by the British forces at the time as well. For example, it's recorded in, in oral history interviews, I think that Tomás has done, that in one case the black and tans come into a classroom and make the teacher and all the children write, fuck the Pope, on the blackboard. 
Now, if that isn't sectarian, what is it? You also have a priest in uh, East Clare who's burned in effigy. Now, I would suggest that's more because of his Republican sympathies. But this came up, and as you said, the, the Cork link. Fitzpatrick often, well, not Fitzpatrick, but one of his students, Hart, argued that spies who were alleged spies, people who were shot as spies by the IRA, he said sometimes this was done because they were Protestant rather than because they were genuinely spies. And here's a quote from Fitzpatrick. Um, now, it's worked for the record. All of the three spies that I'm aware of shot in Clare, Fitzpatrick says there's up to five, I would say there's three, maybe a fourth at the most, but we're all were Catholic. Fitzpatrick said, and this is from uh, his book, The Two Irelands, several hundred supposed informers were murdered. Though many of the dead had indeed tipped off the police or the castle, others were victims of numerous paranoid assumptions. Adulterers, homosexuals, tinkers, beggars, ex-servicemen, Protestants. Now, if you actually look at this and go into the details, I did, as part of my PhD, looked at the number of spies that were shot, alleged spies shot by the IRA. There were approximately 200 of them. Of those, I've gone through and broken down the religion of each of them. 75% of them were Catholic. So if the IRA were bigoted against Protestants, they were three times as bigoted against Catholics. Um, it's been alleged that the uh, IRA shot a lot of tramps. Well, Hugh McIver, who was in the Royal Irish Constabulary in Cork, and Kenneth Strong, who was in the British Army in Offaly, both said they went out disguised as tramps in this guerrilla war to conduct intelligence work. Ex-soldiers, Paul Taylor has written an excellent book about that, where he proves that there was not a huge campaign of, you know, bigotry against ex-soldiers at the time. A lot of ex-soldiers like Ignatius O'Neill actually joined the IRA. And as for the suggestion that adulterers or homosexuals were being targeted by the IRA in some kind of Puritan crusade, Fitzpatrick in that book gave no evidence for that whatsoever. And how do you psychoanalyze the dead? How do you psychosexualize them and know which one of them were homosexuals or having adulterers? So I think sometimes when you concentrate on statistics and all these things, or you put out claims like that, you need to go down to ground level. You need to analyze each killing. You need to look at all the sources and come at all these things afresh. Okay, uh, yeah, I just want to come in on this point. The thing is, and actually to, to why I think probably using statistics is important is what you said about spies there, I think is actually... With respect, Porg is kind of a misuse of, uh, of the statistics because the thing is, what you have to look at is, is the balance of the percentage of the populations in the area, right? So, so the thing is, is, is what, what percentage of the Irish population were Catholic? Uh, about uh, 90%. And so 10% and 10% were Protestant. So the thing is, hold on, just let me finish, okay? So the thing is, so, so if, you, if you look at your likelihood of, of, of being... Statistically, that way of a Protestant being killed, you were three times as likely to be, or something, to be killed if you were a Protestant than if you. So, so you. The reason why statistics are important is because you because you can't actually that what what you're saying doesn't actually work statistically. Thing is, we don't know, and we are never going to know why a lot of why people were a lot of people were killed or or weren't. But I think you need to give people, everybody involved the benefit of, of the doubt and to be as fair-minded as you can for everybody involved. But on a wider point, though, that you're saying about sectarianism, and the problem with, I think, a big problem with the Irish debate is that it's too narrow in terms of this country. If the, I would highly recommend people read a book. I think its name, the first name is Daniel. His second name is generally Jackson. It's just come out, and it's about the, the campaign against Irish home rule in Edwardian Britain. And it's absolutely brilliant, because what he talks about is how important religion still was in Britain, uh, the level of sectarianism in Britain, all right? And, and, so that, and how that the Ulster Unionists were able to play on that sectarianism when they were kind of 
get, getting people riled up against home rule. And so the thing is, it is just, and, and because there's a, there's, there's a, a perception that, that, that Britain was more secular than Ireland, but in fact, when you read a book like that, from the time and how important churches were, you see it's actually, Ireland wasn't nearly as unusual as sometimes people think in terms of the importance of religion. And so the thing is, what's, you know, what people need to do is a two-island study of sectarianism, not just a northern study or a southern study or things like that, you know, because you get a much better sense of, of religion generally, and it's important, and it was, you know, because Britain was incredibly sectarian. You know, it just wasn't, it was, just wasn't so much tied up with landholding and things. Come back to that, and apology Eve, for interrupting earlier. Um, just, I, I think the the number of um, uh, Catholics in the country was about 75, 80 percent. But statistics, uh, just one one more one. If we look at the number of Clare who joined the Black and Tans, 61 Clare joined the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries. Clare Protestants account for two percent of the population, but they account for 15 percent of the Clare who joined the Black and Tans. And I think it is obviously a suggestion that. I think we know, and it's fairly well established, that the Loyalist population uh, were mostly Protestant in the South, though not exclusively. And if you look at a county like Armagh, the IRA only shoot two spies in Armagh. They're both Catholics, so that's 100%. Does that mean that there's no anti-Protestant sectarianism? Or in um, Leitrim, where they, shit, uh, where they shoot one, a guy called Latimer, and uh, Latimer's wife later makes a claim to the British Army saying, yes, he was a spy. Hmm. So, I mean, I think we can get too bogged down in these, uh, in these things. I want to bring Cecile in, uh, because I'm looking at the time here, Cecile, just in terms of um, something from the, the, from the military services pensions archives. Uh, like, I, I got what the lady said at the beginning, the stats don't really talk about the people, but, and to know what happened and how it happened, you need to know who the people were and you need to know um, as much as possible about them. Um, and MSPC is very good for that because it does it not randomly, but it does it systematically. Uh, for example, in, in uh, Fitzpatrick's book, there is a little table of what the uh, civilian occupation of people involved, the men involved in the events were, and he has a breakdown uh, between, I think, farmers, laborers, and shopkeepers, or something like that. And thanks to MSPC, for example, I know now there are 46 farmers, 38 laborers, teachers, drapers, railway workers, bakers, mechanics, hotel proprietor, gardeners, shop assistants, caretakers, asylum attendants. Uh, I know who's driving, who's the chauffeur of Reverend Canon Kennedy. I know who uh, is cattle dealer. I know, you know, uh, there's a professor of history, James Hogan. Um, one clerk in London County Council. So you do know about the people. And the thing um, that I wanted to say has something to do with the Renine ambush and the reprisals in La Hinch. Um, obviously, we know the people that are most represented in the collection are people who were members of the IRA of Cumanamon and of Fine Air. And many women were not members of Cumanamon. They were, they, were, they were told to not be members so that they could do other things that would be more valuable to the IRA <coughs> as not a non-member. Um, but the dependence series is very important because you have the ordinary people claiming in respect of their dead relatives. And that's an example of one uh, for Renine and what happened after. It's the file, it, it's a 1D470, uh, and it's Margaret um, Lehan. Le 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 yeah. Why is this such a problem to me? <laughs> uh, Margaret Lehan, who applies a, in respect of the death of Patrick Lehan, who died, he was shot dead and thrown. Uh, in the fire in, in Flanagan's in La Hinch. Um, so she lost her son, it's about 20, uh, uh, 
and she claims for him under the DME Pensions Act. Now, you look through the files and you get really good evidence. Uh, there's a letter from a Father Moran in 1925 that stating that Patrick Lehan was, uh, was killed as part of the, the, the La Hinge reprisals, and it gives plenty of details of his day. Um, but then you go through the files a little bit more and you can find two applications. So you're kind of wondering, why is there a second application? Is that that lady also lost her second son later on in the Civil War in 1922? And then you dig a little bit more and you have more statements from that uh, Father Moran, uh, but they're also from a T. Morris um, saying that her husband was also shot dead on the day during the reprisal. He was shot, he died later of his wounds. So. In the same file, you have Margaret, who basically claimed for one dead son, two dead sons. You learn that her husband got killed as well. And then later on in the file, you find the name of Mary O'Neill. Um, and so and you're like, okay, so you understand that she's the daughter of Margaret. Um, so she lost her two brothers, she lost her dad, and she's claiming for herself because she's a member of Kuhneman, so that means she has a file. Um, and you learn that her husband is Ignatius O'Neill, who's very, very prominent in the area, and then he died in 39. So she also applies as a widow. So like, certainly in one file you have of Margaret, who's a member of nothing, you learn how much mm. the acreage of her uh, property is, where uh, did she claim from a, a compensation, and she did, she got compensation for her first son and for her, 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 her husband. You know what she's been doing, you know what the, the, the sons were doing, one was running the, the farm, the other one was doing something, and the other, there's a third one who's too young to, to do anything. And you learn so much in the space of 20, 25 pages, and that you would get nowhere else. Uh, and obviously Mary O'Neill applies, applies later uh, for herself because she's helping the ASU, because, she's, she's, because her husband is so involved that by nature then she's involved. She doesn't really have, you know, her things to say. Stefan here. Yeah. Hi. Uh, yeah, you can hear it. All right. Um, just to come in on the point of the methodologies and so on and so forth, it's, uh, what I'm hearing is it's being framed against qualitative versus quantitative when quite frankly, they complement each other very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing that's, uh, the other thing is, uh, in the use of statistics is, it, it, it's the principle of space and scale. Mm -hmm. And uh, like each of them have, uh, each of them are a compromise, basically. Um, what you call it? I mean, with the, you get general trends with statistics and you drill and you can drill down to the local level, as you say, or, or whichever. One doesn't validate the other. You can mix them, mix them together. I mean, you could come out with an individual story that completely um, goes at odds with statistics. That in itself is of huge interest. And, and you know, it's worthy of, worthy of looking at, you know. Um, just, and also with, stati with statistics, it's, it's about the variations as well. Um, like, are, are, were people impacted differently according to class, according to gender, like you were saying? Those breakdowns are incredibly important to have. Um, so it's like, I suppose my point is, it's not an adversal relationship between the two different sets. They've got advantages, disadvantages, and so on how you w weave them together and, and so on and so forth like that. 
Um, urban and rural would be another one as well, even though Ireland is obviously agrarian by such. But say comparing Clare to Dublin, for example, and so on and so forth, you know, it's all in how you use them. Um, they're not, they're, it's not either or, that's what I'm saying. That's all. Um, just, I want to just move, I'm looking, I keep an eye on the time here, right? So if anybody else wants to come in, just gather your thoughts here because you, you, your, your time is running out here. But I just wanted to go on to the, um, there, there was a, a second issue, edition of the book brought out in 1997, uh, which um, David writes a, a new preface and he remarks on the, the, how, how, how historical research has been transformed in the previous 20 years. Now that was 22 years ago, so what has changed since the second edition came out in the last 20 years? Undoubtedly, to be fair to the man and the historians of his generation, it was a hell of a lot harder to write history back then because back then, if you went into an archive, you would have your pencil and you know, a bit of paper, and that was it. If you were very wealthy, you might have been able to be very good at stills, close-up photography, and would have gotten to take a picture. Now we just walk in with our phone, and with permission, you can snap, snap, snap away at the records. The internet obviously hadn't been invented. So from the point of view of documents, and a lot of stuff has been released now that was not available at the time. Some of these documents we've been talking about were available at the, at the time. The thing is, if you were interviewed as a, a veteran in the 1930s, you uh, or in the 1950s, you were, the army kept a copy of it, and the family kept a copy of it. And what's interesting about the family copies is some of them are still floating around out there. And while the Department of Defense, before deciding to release the files in 2003, went through and kind of weeded them, took out in some cases embarrassing details, the name of spies, redacted information, all that is available in the family accounts, which the, army, which the family kept in the drawer, and the army never got to censor. But the one great thing that Fitzpatrick had that we didn't have, and again, I, I don't think he made enough use of it, is he got to interview veterans and civilians and witnesses and people who were there. Like, he said in his 1998 edition that he was the last person who would do that. And I'd argue he's wrong because I think uh, Tomás has spoken to a lot of people who were eyewitnesses. I was only ever lucky enough to meet one uh, person who had been a participant, a combatant in that war, and that was Lieutenant Colonel Sean Clancy, who died in, I think, 2006. And he was the second last survivor of the, uh, of the conflict. But the history has, has, how we write it, how we research it has changed. And there's new topics and things we talk about now, for example, the role of women, which doesn't really feature in the, the book, and something new we're starting to talk about, sexual violence during the War of Independence against women. So not only have we got new information, we're willing to talk about new topics that were previously taboo. But just, just a comment in relation then to, to what um, Cecile's been explaining to us. I mean, the, the military service pensions uh, files, they, they are on open access, are they? Uh, yeah, so how it works, okay, it's a quarter of a million files, so obviously... Um, Usually for archival collection, the archivists uh, process, that means just catalogue as best as possible and organise the collection for access. That's closed during that, that, that process and then it's released, whether it's online or in the reading room or whatever. With a quarter of a million file, you can't wait for the whole collection to be catalogued, <laughs> especially in times of uh, commemorations. So what we do is that we're trying to have uh, releases every year. Uh, we start in 2014. And the, the next one will be very soon, before the end of the year, and it'll be our eighth release. So every time we have a coherent release that tells a story and we have what we call kind of selling point, you know, all National Army dead, all from that area, all the women from, you know, where as soon as we have 5,000 files ready to go, that, that's a release, we draw the line. 
Um, and what we do with those files, again, to impress on you the importance of, of the job as well, is that uh, we could have released an Excel sheet with all the names of people. Um, uh, but obviously, even for today, I would have had to identify who, li who lives in Clare, go back to the files, see if it's interesting, use it. What we're doing is that we catalog each one of the files individually, and we describe everything individually. Um, and believe it or not, they're still uh, living relatives of those people, so we also have to take care of their, their data, because obviously, mm. uh, the, you know, it could be nieces, uh, children, grandchildren, uh, they organize the, the funerals of the person, so their names, their addresses are in there, so obviously we have to, to uh, we don't weed that, uh, we, we keep everything together, but it's not on open access. Um, what is on open access, uh, whatever is online is obviously uh, accessible. Uh, and then the medal file, the medal series, sorry, uh, which is about 66,000 files. Uh, those files are available by appointment in the military archives. The point I'm making is that this, this is one of several uh, digital collections that are online yeah. that the general public have access to. So the whole business of, of historical research has been democratised. I mean, I'm also thinking of in Trinity, the uh, 1641 depositions uh, uh, project. Mm. I mean, massive. You know, these are what 8,000. Uh, sworn statements taken in the 1640s. So th th it seems to me like that that's a major advance because of you know because of uh, uh, online technology. This gentleman here, just if you just use the mic. Sorry, thank you very much. Just on the question of the the nominal files and the medal index, um, I've been fortunate enough to go to go through all in clear now um, and added up most of them. In the nominal files, you can come up with going through all the different Clare brigades and the companies and the battalions. You can come up with approximately six and a half thousand volunteers. Would come and mind you in Clare, uh, going through all the brigades, um, the battalions, the companies. You come up with approximately two and a half thousand names. So that that would be between eight and a half and nine thousand Clare names. If you go into the medal index, I've been lucky enough to go through the four thousand two hundred Clare volunteers and approximately the five hundred coming to mind in the medal index. So that only adds up to 4,700 or 800. Yeah. So you have to blatantly ask the question, if you, if these, and, and even when you do go through the medal index, a huge amount of them did not receive their medal because as you say, they didn't produce the proper accounts, even though you might find their name in the nominal files. Yeah. So you can only take it then that the witnesses said, they, they were in the IRA, they were in the volunteers, but nobody could prove it. So all I'm asking is when you go through the nominal files and you have three and a half thousand extra names that can't be authenticated with a medal, I mean, where do, when you go through the, the nominal names, how do you know then that these people were in yeah, those actual yeah. companies? If you start trying to match figures, you're, you'll be there for the rest of your life. It's just not going to happen. So you're going to have to make your peace with that and, and just accept that stuff we don't know. It's actually more complex than, than this. When the applicant is successful for a pension, he or she has been validated already. So their uh, medal, medal, the 1721 with bar, would be automatically sent to them. So there's no medal file for them. When they are unsuccessful, they have to do an application for the medal. 
So they have Sorry. no pension could, file. Could you say that again? So okay. for a sentence. You'll when, get the money, you'll give me the medal. <laughs> if you, if you, you can get a medal you, without actually being on the medal index. Hold on, I'll just finish, the because it's also for me, it's, I have to be clear about what I'm saying. If you're successful in your pension application, that means you have proven your membership to whatever organization and you have proven what you've done. When you're successful for your pension, the medal, the medal is actually sent to you automatically. There is no MD file for you. It's automatic. If you're unsuccessful for your medal application, you have to apply for a medal uh, uh, on its own, if you will. Separately. Then separately you have an MD file. To get a medal, we're talking only about the 1721, uh, so without bar, because you have been unsuccessful at your pension application, you only have to prove three months service, which is not a lot to ask. You don't have to have done anything. You just have to prove three months service. Some people, some women have files, some files get lost or whatever. Some people, like women, have and a pension file and an MD file, but it's only a handful, so that would play in the difference as well. So could one deduct that the eight, eight or the whatever, nearly 9,000 volunteers and come to mind that all of them got medals? Whether it was through their pension or whether they just had the, tr the No, if they're, if they're successful at their pension application, they had a medal. They have a medal with bar. Oh, oh no, but the ones without the bar, I'm oh. sorry. The ones without the bar, the ones that just did the minimum three months, uh, what I'm trying to ask is that it, does everybody in the nominal role have a medal? No. Oh, well, no. Okay, and, and and maybe you can start this afterwards. <laughs> we're a bit technical here, right? And I'm just looking at the time here because uh, we're going to have a wrap up here soon. Does anyone else in the audience want to make a contribution before we, we wrap up? Go to the, yeah, this gentleman here. And just wait till we get the mic. Um, there was... Hello? You're on, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, in re reference to the medals, what's 1721 and what's the bar for? Okay, so we're, we have three different medals uh, in that collection. So we have this 1916 medal, so that's kind of self-explanatory. And the 17 is the service, a war independence pre-truce. It's a pre-truce medal with bar and without bar. Pre-truce. Pre-truce. Before the truce. Before the truce in January or July 21. The truce 1921. So they have a pre-truce service. Oh, yes. Pre oh, yeah, okay. okay. And the bar? The bar is just, uh, I think it's combat uh, uh, written on, on, on the bar. And it signifies that person uh, was inactive. It was deemed inactive service during that period. At any one point in that period. Okay, tell you what. I'm, I'm going to have a wrap up here, right? Um, so I was going to go to... Um, Eve and, and Paul again, this side, first of all. Just going back to the, the, the David Fitzpatrick's book, um, has it stood the test of time? Uh, yeah, well, yes, I think it, it has and it hasn't, as much as any history book now, ever does. don't sit the fence on this one. <laughs> I'm not. I, but, but, uh, but no, 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 but, but in the sense that, uh, first of all, I want to commend Cecile for, I mean, the, the top-notch job that that's being done with the Military Service Pensions Project, and it's a phenomenal source. I wasn't saying that at all, it's, but it's not a perfect source, all right? No, no more sources. than the Bureau. Exactly. And the thing is, there's lots of people, if you were like an irredentist Republican, you wouldn't even apply. I mean, one of the interesting things about the MSPs is that the number of people who took the soup, if you like, you know, <laughs> people like Pax Whelan and all that. But, but anyway, uh, but on a wider point, so... so, so um, it was quite heartened to hear some of, the, some of the contributions from the floor because it shows that people are actually taking quite a sophisticated approach to the material. 
Um, because the, the Bureau of Military History, the Ernie Malley notebooks that we didn't talk about, the MSPs, these are all heavily mediated retrospective sources that were taken a very long time afterwards, right? And so you have to use them with sources from the time, which is what David concentrated on. And so in that sense, in a way, what's happening now is that people aren't doing as broad-based research. I think the gentleman at the back talked about that. There's been an over-concentration on the, on, the, on the military, the IRA campaign, as opposed to other things. And, and you were absolutely right. And, that, and one of the things that I think has to happen is that, first of all, we have stopped using the, the Bureau and the MSPs and the Ernie O'Malley notebooks in a naive way. You have to, you, you have to use them hmm. in conjunction with primary sources of the time. And in that sense, what, what's really backward at the moment is you have the Mulcahy papers and things that are not yet online. The Mulcahy papers is contemporary, um, huge contemporary collection of, of brigade correspondence from the time. It is not online, all right? You have to, have to, have to have it, you know, to compare what you're saying to sort out problems with the nominal roles, because there's no, like there's the, the numbers of people who were being counted in 1921 are very different than the numbers that you get you know, in, in the 1930s, and I think you, you brought up the, the, uh, the notional grade of ranks, which is what you're talking about, where you got, if, if you had, a, if you were in command of, I, I'm not sure it was a bit of, of a brigade, or which battalion was, of over 100, you got a higher rate of pension than if you were in a really small brigade, which, which is what you were talking about, and so the thing is, so it, you can imagine what might happen, you know, when you're drawing up these 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 notes of roles. So I think I think I mean I actually don't. I'm not sure I agree with Porg about the about the about the, the statistics aren't important. I think you're certainly generally right, uh, totally right about the sense that it doesn't give you the personal experience. I absolutely think you're right, but I think you have to have the statistics to 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 to, to kind of balance and weigh. Um, the, the, the individual experience, which is, I think that gentleman there was saying and, and put, put it very well. So, and so the thing is, and the problem is, I think a lot of the history that's being done now doesn't have nearly as broad a scope. He had fewer sources to deal with, but I think he actually do, did a lot more research than people tend to do now. Tomas, how's this through the test of time? I think it's a hugely important source and it continues to be. So in that sense, it, it certainly has. Um, you know, there's no implication when I, and I was a little uncomfortable when you're discussing someone else's work to, to a degree, but there's no implication that I have anything better to offer before I say any more. But I had, I had a neighbor. <laughs> That's um, honestly. Yeah, I had a neighbor years ago who used to say that, you know, you don't have to be able to make the perfect rikihe to know the one in front of you is lopsided. So there, there, there's, there's a reality that um, there are aspects of the book in terms of what has been said about it and what has put it on such a, a pedestal is this notion that Fitzpatrick was able to, to tap in to the, the, the people of the county to capture that and to convey it in the book. And for me, that's not there. So that pillar falls. Um, I think in terms of the sources, in terms of the scholarship, it's, it's an incredible body of work. Um, and I think in, the, in that context, it certainly stands the test of time. Park, I'll give you the last word on this. Uh, yeah, just very, very quickly, I was going to say another plug for History Ireland. If you go to their website, David Fitzpatrick and Eve took part in a hedge school panel, and I spoke from the floor back in 2010, and the video of that is up, and it's, it's well worth a watch. Uh, in terms of statistics, you know, I'm critical of him for that. I just My issue is don't use statistics alone and think they give the full picture. I'm going to also be a cheerleader for the military archives and say not only do they have exceptional stuff online, if you actually have to go in and access something, 
they're far more friendly than most of the other national archives we have in Ireland, <laughs> and way more professional. And finally, regarding the book, look, it is, like, I'm, it, for the faults I find in it, it is a good book that all of you are obviously interested in the War of Independence, Claire. You should have this on your bookshelves, but you should also buy first Tomás Macamara's The Time of the Tans, and in a shameless plug, I have a few books written as well, so get that. Actually, that's the second last word. Just, See, just, you want to say something before we finish? I think... Uh, Fitzpatrick says it himself in the book that the book is a product of its time. And that I think it's the main thing. Everything is a product of its time. Whatever book written and, and the sources are not there, so you can't use them. And it's very, it's, it's very sometimes rich of us to, to judge something backwards like that when the sources were not out there. What you have to keep an eye out is when the sources are out there and they're not used for a reason or for another. And that, for me, is a lot more problematic uh, uh, in terms of research than when stuff is not there. Because certainly no archival collection is perfect, but some are more perfect than others. Um, so that, that's my last bit. And uh, before you go, I will have... I brought four boxes of books from our two publications, the guide to the collection and the whole book on the Brigade Activity Reports. So I will put them somewhere and you can help yourselves. Just very quick. Yes. It's on? It's on, yeah. It's on, yes. Uh, listen, I just want to say thank you to all of you for a wonderful seminar. It was very good. We may not agree on different things, <laughs> but wonderful. It's great to get to exchange of views and I'm really happy for that. My name is Joe Power and I just want to say an ad. I'll be giving a talk on the War of Independence in Clare next Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. in the Clare <laughs> yes. County Library, and it's based on my extensive research over the past four years on that. So I hope you'll all be there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Now, just before we, um, just before we finish up, I, I just want, I want to add my own few words here, just of a personal nature. Um, David Fitzpatrick was one of my lecturers in second year, an undergraduate in Trinity. I have to say, our relationship didn't start well. Uh, he's the only, um, the only lecturer who ever failed me on an essay, uh, quite rightly so. It was a, it was a, it was a terrible piece of conspiratorial uh, nonsense. Um, there was also a famous walkout, actually, from one of his lectures, which um, Urban Mitz uh, has put down to me. I, I was supposedly the leader of it. I wasn't, actually. I did walk out. I wish I was the leader of it, actually. It was, it was a pretty provocative uh, lecture he gave about the 1916 Rising. But it just goes to show you what things were like back in the early 80s. Like, people really cared. Like, this was, this was really... Uh, there was a very, very vigorous uh, contention going on of ideas going on there. I remember there was a war going on in the North as well at the same time. So there were different times. Um, at the, at the interview with the, 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 um, when he failed my essay, he said he found it very irritating to read. And I shot back. You know the way you have this out-of-body experience? Did I really say this? I said to him, your job isn't to be irritated. Your job is to make me a better historian. And immediately he, he, he stepped back, and we had a grand relationship after that. And ever since uh, he's, in terms of um, heavyweight academics, he's probably contributed more to History Ireland than any other uh, you know, notable academic he wasn't the warmest of people, to be honest with you. You know, I mean, everyone would admit that. But he was utterly professional in his approach. And uh, he also made fantastic coffee. I mean, the days when the, you, you got Nescafe, the coffee he gave out at, at his tutorials was absolutely exquisite. So uh, we, he will be dearly missed, I have to say. Well, listen, very, th thanks very much for your attention. I'd like to thank our, our uh, panel here, uh, Pori Golga Rourke. Uh, uh, so what's... I, I actually, sorry. 
Um, this was sponsored by Clare Library Service. Oh, sorry. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm the county <laughs> librarian. And uh, we've been, I suppose, I suppose uh, supporting the historic um, endeavours and research over the last number of years to the decade of centenaries, which is a national um, commemoration period. So uh, we started in uh, 2016 and we're going right up to 2022. So we've kind of invented a history week. So we would hope to repeat this again next year. So we have a whole week of lectures. Um, Joe has already alluded to his particular lecture and uh, we hope you enjoy and come to some of the others. So thanks very much. And I want to thank the assembled historians, those in the audience and those at the main table. And thanks everyone for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry, Doris. Just can I just say, can I just finish by thanking our panel, Porig Og O'Rourke, uh, Cecile Gordon, who's obviously furiously over there uh, promoting the merchandise. Uh, on my left here, Eve Morrison and Tomas Makanmara. Uh, uh, now, our next hedge school uh, is next Thursday in uh, Malahide Community College. Uh, there's no use turning up because it's actually booked out. 250 Leaving Cert students, it's going to be scary. Uh, the next Hedge School after that, actually the same evening, an interesting one, uh, we are, I, I am actually chairing a discussion on the Atrix. Anybody remember the Atrix? Late 70s, early 80s band? They were better than you. There, I, somebody put their hand up at the back, right? There's a few of us left. Anyway, that's going to be taking place in the Sugar Club at uh, 7.30 on the evening of Thursday, the 19th of September. But listen, check out the History on website for future uh, Hedge Schools, and I hope to be back here in Ennis uh, soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>